0: Asia Tech Podcast, voice of the Asian tech ecosystem. Hi, this is Michael Waits with Asia Tech Podcast Stories. I'm talking to Will Fan. Will is the CEO and the co-founder of QLC. How are you doing, Will? Good, Michael. Thanks so much for having me on the track. Oh, it's completely my pleasure. We've been trying to do this. I've wanted to have you on for such a long time, um, and I'm glad we finally sort of had our schedules gel together. That makes me happy.
1: Yeah, it's what happens when you live on two parts of the world. Um, but yeah, ready to you know find any questions. Happy to share more about my experience.
0: Yeah. So tell me. So where are you from originally? Um, born and raised
1: in Sydney, Australia. Okay. Um, my family's Chinese, um, and I actually only just recently moved to Shanghai. Um, so our story was that we uh, moved from Sydney to Singapore to launch KLC. Uh, three years later down the road, we decided to check out um, different parts of Asia. So either through visa runs to Thailand, Vietnam, Korea. Um, And now we've actually found ourselves in Shanghai, China, which has been really good for us uh, for the past eight
0: months. Is that it? So it's only been eight months. Like I think of you as somebody who's been in China for a long time. And every time we talk about it, it just refreshes my memory. I don't know. I should should you know, be better about remembering that. Why don't you tell me a little bit, a little bit more about the genesis of QLC as well, right? I mean, I know there's a lot of information about it out there, but I'd like to hear it in your own, in your own voice. Sure, sure. So QLC stands for Quarter Life Crisis,
1: and what we want to do is help people try new careers all around the world without that risk of quitting a day job. So what it is is a marketplace that connects students and mid-career professionals. To remote internships, and we connect them to interesting startups, social enterprises, and fast-moving companies like the Teslas, Ubers, LinkedIn's of the world. And I guess the premise behind this is, as the world's moving faster, as you know, different uh, you know opportunities pop up. Um, how can we help people learn new careers, learn new skills, but also scratch that itch of, is that really what I want to do next? Um, So we've been around for about three, three and a half years now, Um, and we're probably connecting uh, over 12,000 people to companies across Asia. That's why I'm in China now.
0: Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask you. So you went to Singapore. I I presume you conceptualized this company with your partner in Australia. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so a bit about um, our background, Uh, I sort of started my life doing a lot of different things, Um, started off in law, then banking, then consulting. And then after a couple of months, um, you know, in my uh, most recent job, um, I wanted to learn about this world of tech. Um, And so what I did was I found an interesting business online. It was a furniture company, and I replicated that as an app in Australia. And my co-founder, Faye, and I at that time, we just did it as a side hustle. We learned a few coding skills. We learned to offshore tech. Um, And what we realized was, you know, at that point in time, it was either you pursue your career doing a business or you stay in your job. And we luckily got accepted to an accelerator in Singapore. So after six months of that, we quit our jobs, packed our bags, moved overseas. What we realized was that we're not good at selling furniture, but there's this new generation of people who want to try new things outside of work. And so that's where the idea of QLC came about. We're helping people navigate new careers without that risk of taking the leap of faith. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.
0: So, what does that mean? That means I'm 26, 27 years old. You know, I work at a consulting company or I work at a law firm or I'm even trying to build an app or working at a startup. And I just think, this is not for me. But. You know, maybe I have some loans outstanding, or maybe I just don't have the risk appetite to just say, I'm out of here, I'm quitting, I'm going to take a backpack and end up in Kuala Lumpur or something, so I can actually test it when I'm at my old job or my existing How does that work?
1: That actually started off as the immediate customer, you know, being patient zero of QLC. Um, but what it is uh, in as a product is actually a remote internship. So you spend five to 10 hours per week over six weeks to work on a digital project with any company in the world. And so what we call ourselves is more an ed tech company, so just like Udacity or Udemy. Rather than doing an online course, you can do an online project. And that way, you can really focus on three life learning skills, which is digital skills relevant to a new company, um, getting access to a new culture outside of your day job, but more importantly, just try something new um, outside of your traditional nine-to-five. And so a lot of people come to us for many different reasons. It could be they're interested in moving abroad or interested in pivoting their career. But at the end of the day, we wanna make it simple and bite-sized for you to just try
0: it before you buy it. And do do you, sorry, so is it the case now that most of your customers, meaning the people that use the service, are still at a job when they're doing this virtual internship? Or is it a mix yes. between like existing students or people that haven't found work yet that are trying to prove to someone that they can do the job, like almost like an on the job interview kind of thing? Do you see some of that yeah. too?
1: Yeah, so this the interesting thing is, you know, since building QLC, we've had so many different stories come through. It could be the postgraduate MBA student who's looking for, you know, an entry into the world of tech, or it could be a forty year old um, accountant who wants to learn about e-commerce all the way to an undergraduate student who has um, you know, picked up his degree in finance but wants to learn about fintech. Um, right now, our main customers is actually uh, in the education space. So rather than sort of serving everyone, we're currently focused on helping transform um, universities across Australia and UK. So what that looks like is how can we help um, you know, as new digital career paths are emerging, how can we help students going through school, learn the right skills, be job ready, but also meet mentors and businesses outside of their uh, outside of their country?
0: Yeah, so this is really interesting. When I was in college, we did do internships, we did it over spring break, we did it over Christmas break as well, but it wasn't really super organized, right? And this sounds to me like it's a lot more organized. And it also gives people international experience as well is that right so if i'm sitting at the U- university of new south wales and i'm really interested in fintech but there's nothing in sydney or there's nothing in melbourne that does that i can actually work for a company in singapore or in china or in france frankly that has a spot for an intern for a certain period of time
1: yeah so i mean it's two, it's really two things the scalability and quality control yeah how does so that work about so if you think about traditional um career services at university you might have A team of five, 10, 15 managers who look after, you know, the yearly roadshows from large corporates, um, you know, exhibiting at the university. But if you look at today, the way that we work and live, it's actually very global. It's very digital. Um, A company in Shanghai could be building a business for Australia. And likewise, a company like Tesla could be breaking into larger markets like China. And this is actually something you don't learn at school. Um, and more importantly, as you go through the education system, you realize that getting that piece of paper isn't as valuable as it was, say, 10, you know, decade or two decades ago. Yeah. So how can you keep your students relevant, but also bridge that gap when they finish their degree? And so the universities and the students come to us for two reasons. One is we can actually scale. So the way that we scale is we can find companies anywhere in the world. And the way that we structure the internship is actually very um, mentorship and curriculum driven. Um, the second part is just accessing opportunities outside of their local you know, market. So being in Australia, you might be focusing on mining or finance, but how can you access education in India right. or AI and VR in Silicon Valley? Um, we help people connect to those opportunities overnight.
0: Yeah, so tell me how that process works, right? Because this is really interesting. In other words, you've mentioned Tesla twice. So I'm presuming that either A, you aspired to work with them or B, you already are working with them. But what is that process like from a sales perspective to the corporate? And I'll put them in the corporate space, right? From the student space, I get it completely. But how do you convince a company like Tesla that's, let's say, trying to expand into Malaysia that a student from Australia is going to be able to do a virtual project for them and that it's going to be valuable for both sides? Like, how does that sales process work?
1: So we actually have, uh, three type of businesses that we work with. The first is fast-moving technology businesses, so like the Teslas, Ubers, LinkedIns of the world. Yep. Two, social enterprise, so a company that is doing social good. Or three, an early-stage startup that is either doing cutting-edge business models or cutting-edge uh, problems that they're trying to solve. And so uh, uh, approaching these three type of companies is actually very similar because we treat these businesses not as a company, but the hosts and mentors within the business. So what we're also seeing is this trend of young professionals, young uh, managers, young business uh, owners that want to pay it forward and mentor people uh, interested in the industry. And so we would approach a manager of Tesla sales the same way we approach the co-founder of a food delivery business in, uh, in China. The way that it works is also quite similar because we're not charging the business to hire an intern either. It's a way for you to give back through mentorship. QLC provides a curriculum and project framework and the university currently pays for the student to do this project uh, as part of their curriculum.
0: So how do you build this? So this curriculum building is actually really interesting to me, right? I don't think that's a piece that a lot of companies that are trying to do what you're doing are missing. In other words, they're Everybody wants to be a marketplace. Everybody wants to just sit in the middle, clip a ticket, take a commission, and just connect people. And that's not a bad business. But what is the curriculum that you're building, and how customized is it, not just to the university, but for the industry or the company that you're working for, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question, because that becomes one of our secret sauce. Um, What we realized in the early days, um, working with 10, 15, 50 startups, is that most of the problems that they they have are actually the same. It might be content marketing, finding, you know, building thought leadership or doing BD in a secondary market. And so what we realized, it's actually not the money, which is most um, inefficient when you hire someone. It's the time it takes to train and upskill um, that new employee or intern that's joining your company. And so we took these learnings, put it into a six-week framework and provided tasks video material, training materials, so that anyone doing that project is almost foolproof. So what that looks like, let's say if we're approaching a large company like LinkedIn, they could use a data analytic toolkit, as well as a smaller business using the Kiosi data analytic toolkit. Um, The only customization that comes from this is the business itself and the you know, the nuances of that particular project. But everything else, the infrastructure, the training, is actually facilitated by QLC.
0: Oh wow. So do people participate in a QLC training program before they then go to the internship or they do it at the same time that they're doing the internship? They do it at the same time.
1: And that's why we believe bite-sized experiences are more important than let's say a traditional internship. You know, let's say you're working for a large corporate, you might do your first week roadshow. And then for the next two months, you're just doing whatever's thrown at you. Right. In our case, we're working with so many companies, but saying these are the bite-sized projects that you could be using off the shelf. And this is attributed to the lifecycle of your business anyway. So it allows us to recycle, reuse different businesses, but also evolve and build credibility behind what the students are learning and what the businesses are getting out of the
0: program. Okay. Now things are getting really interesting, actually. So when you build... Like, how often do you sort of retool the curriculum? And um, do you find instances where, let's say you're going through a six-week program, you've taught somebody about the business development process or digitalizing something, and you realize, oh, wait a second, this company where this person is working is actually doing something slightly differently and innovative. We should incorporate that now into our curriculum. Do you build new as well? Yeah, so we currently focus on three
1: paths, uh, three tracks, digital marketing, business development, data analytics we actually have another 28 tracks um, in the pipeline. And so there's a few ways that we're evolving this curriculum. Uh, the first is we have a full-time curriculum developer uh, who's joined our team from Israel. The second is we work closely with the schools. So universities are using QLC as part of their um, academic. Uh, so once you study a QLC course, it attributes to your degree. Oh, wow. And third, we do larger partnerships with say Slack, um udacity so it provides a bit more uh technology driven um insight into how we can scale this
0: curriculum yeah sorry i'm just trying to get my head around this so you really are like an ed tech company but in a way that like a university can't be and in a way that udacity isn't either because you're providing the real life work experience as well yeah i mean we believe that if you think about the history of Um Go ahead.
1: Work experience, for example, right? What we're really trying to do is digitalize the apprenticeship. Instead of, you know, learning how to wield a sword or make a table, you're learning new digital skills, new digital mindsets. Um, We teach a lot of soft skills as well. So how to work remotely, host Skype calls, run podcasts like this. And this is really helping this student or professional learn uh, new skills relevant to their next job or help them propel to whatever they wanna do next.
0: Yeah, but this is really interesting, right? So if you go back and think about this as a, as a ed tech company that also provides work experience, right? if you believe, or if one believes that, as you said earlier, that maybe the university degree, and this is me talking, not you, right? So I'm not putting words in your mouth, right? But if you believe that a university degree over time is becoming less and less valuable because it's not teaching skills that people can actually use, pardon me, in a real employment situation, which I find I was having a discussion with two college students last night, actually, who were visiting Thailand from the U.S., and they said, I don't think we're going to go home, actually. I think we're just going to stay here, learn some, like you said, like learn how to code some more stuff, and then just stay here and work. And I think that, the, you're combining a whole bunch of things that are actually really large long-term mega-trends. And you tell me if you think I'm wrong, right? But this concept that waking up every day after high school, going directly into a university course, getting a degree in, you know, pick something, economics, which is what I studied, and then going to get a job at a consulting company is just not the way most people are going to learn or work, right? So. If that degree is no longer really important or doesn't have the same level of value, and if a university is not teaching you know, data analytics or digital marketing or business development for sure, and they're definitely not teaching how to set up a podcast and how to do a Skype call and all that other stuff, it almost begs the question, what's going to happen? Again, I was thinking about this last night. What's going to happen to 75% of like the junior colleges and small universities that don't have an endowment like you know Harvard and MIT and Stanford that are sitting on you know multi billion dollar endowments. Like what happens there? They're going to come to you. It seems like.
1: Yeah, I think um, that's uh, it's a blue ocean market, right? So many people are trying to solve the mm. global skills gap. Um, I I still believe universities are going to be around for a long time. That's why we work with them. Yeah. No, I get um, that. But one of the, like statistically speaking, you could throw all these numbers, right? You could say Tell me. 60% of, uh, you know, 50, 60% of hiring managers feel as though there's a skills gap with students coming in. Yep. Um, and then you look at ed tech players that have tried to solve this system, like the Courseras of the world, They have something like a 90% dropout rate because online reading and online videos aren't really attributing um, to real learning. So where, where is the next evolution of, you know, developing yourself and make yourself relevant? Um, you would look at say the general assemblies or coding courses, yep. the immersive career switching platforms, but they're too expensive and they can't scale to hundreds of thousands of people just yet. So I, I think we're in an interesting time where the world's moving faster than, um, what you learn at school and Agreed. careers are popping up faster than how curriculum can be iterated. So um, it's a good problem for us to have because it means we can work with multi-markets. And yeah, we're always welcome to partner with more people like yourself that understand this whole macro trend because that's what it really is.
0: So how do you, how have you found the experience of remote working? Not just yourself, although I'm really curious, right? Because I think the follow-up question, and don't answer this one first, but I, I want to get to this. You know, why did you move from Singapore to, to China? But what do you, how have you found virtual working for yourself? That experience, yeah. you know, the time management, all that stuff. And what's the feedback you get both from the companies that are doing it, right? So that they allow people to do the internship, but also the people that are, the workers that are doing it. What's their experience like?
1: Yeah, so um, it's funny because past two weeks I've started building uh, some content and just writing about our experiences as a remote team. <laughs> awesome, um, and we, awesome, and we actually shameless plug in. Um, no, but definitely. We 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 look at say the buffers and Zapiers of the world as yep. sort of the, the leaders in remote working, but. It, it's hard,
0: but why? Um, why? But, it, but do there's, you, sorry, do you, do you look at Zapier and Buffer as remote working because they provide automation tools, or because their businesses are actually built around people not being in a centralized place?
1: Yes, okay. Um, because their their companies are business uh, are built around people working around the world, and as you know, as a as a company of ten people now, we actually can only really use them as a benchmark yep. um, because they're a few steps ahead of us. Um, but my thoughts of building a business is technology is allowing you to do a lot of things um, whether it's finding the talent pool um, much wider anywhere in the world or building a custom base um, you know from different parts of the geography or even living your own personalized lifestyle without having to physically um, you know restrict yourself to an office so i can sort of go on and on about working remotely
0: but tell me no, i really want to know I re- that's why i asked i really want to know like what's the feedback you get how does it change over time like do you know what I mean? Because in my job, right, when I, was, when I was working, I would wake up at 5.30 in the morning. I'd be at the office between 6 and 6.15, and there was a routine that I went through, and it was disciplined by the fact that there were other people there, not just watching me, but the discipline got built by watching what other people did as well, so I knew how to work in that environment. But even for myself, when I wake up today, at, still at 6 o'clock in the morning, you know, I have to remember, like, what am I doing today? How do you build that discipline? So I'm just curious what other people's experiences are, particularly yours, but also people that give you feedback. Like, I really want to know.
1: Yeah, so we, you know, when, when you're building a business like QRC, you want to make a punt on the future of work. Yep. And so our bet is that, the, you know, the future of work is going to be digital, it's going to be remote, and it's going to be global. And so we essentially take and practice what we preach and infuse that into what we teach to our students and professionals doing the projects. Because from the business side, one of their biggest challenges is how can you find smart people coming at you on a weekly, monthly basis from yep. the student side? How do I get global experience right now? And from the university side is how can I make my students um, relevant uh, you know, as a future worker? Right. And so from our end, we are by definition, trying to be the future worker and using our experiences we're teaching people the
0: same trends and the you know learning through the mistakes that we made right so again how do you so how do you infuse that discipline how do you teach people about time management what type of things have you learned around those things so i think those are two of the hardest things to understand at least for me yeah
1: so so any so we actually build a lot of our you know our remote working processes into our curriculum so it might be as simple as you know, you work off Slack, these are the automation tools that allow you to streamline your workflow, all the way to how can you use, um, you know, have the appetite to learn new digital tools to connect to people. It could be sales, i.e. doing BD in another country. It could be digital marketing. So, hacking together growth tactics for WeChat, WhatsApp, Facebook, um, and whatnot, all the way from just simple soft skills. How can you, um, you know sound energetic when you host a meeting online Right, and this is the stuff that this is the stuff that you don't really learn at school and you can't really take away in your day job um, even though like you know even our most recent hires they come from a corporate background like we did yeah um, and you know it's totally flipped um, their mindset of the way of working it's not just about going in clocking in clocking out it's you work whenever you want to you work across a 24-hour um, time schedule with your remote team members. You you know have fun. You enjoy. You mix up your lifestyle, um, and you get to work on the fly when you travel. So all these elements is stuff that we're constantly learning. in New markets and new um, hiring new people from different cultures, and we want to make this part of what we teach.
0: Yeah. So then let's get back to the second part of that question, which was you moved from Australia into Singapore, that, that makes sense to me for a bunch of different reasons, not the least of which is that's where your accelerator program was, I presume, yeah. right? Um, and I really want to ask about that too in a second, but I also want to ask, like, so then you were in Singapore, you went through an accelerator program, um, you got something out of it, maybe you did, you didn't, I'm kind of indifferent, but then you said, I think it's better for me to be in China. What yeah, was the difference um, between living, and so again, just my experience, Right. China, you have, there's a bunch of stuff that you need a VPN to do, so it's slightly less efficient, unless you're going to build everything you have on WeChat. And I'm making presumptions, right? I don't know everything. But what's the difference for you living between Singapore and Shanghai? And, then, and why did you do that? How does that change things for you?
1: So we moved to Singapore because at the time we left, about four years ago, the Sydney startup scene was quite
0: scattered. Yeah, very so. Much so. As a
1: first-time entrepreneur, not even um, – how are you to find mentors, advisors, talk to the right people that can help you open doors? And so we actually went to Singapore on a whim, um, getting into the JFDI Accelerator, and that opened our eyes to, A, moving to a new country and B, building a business in a new country. Um, In the, you know, over three years in Singapore, we learned to build a business and we got, you know, comfortable in positioning ourselves as a Southeast Asian company. Um, The next move um, to China was actually a combination of fundraising uh, reasons. That's where we met Jeffrey Hanley. And secondly, we wanted to put ourselves in a more competitive environment because one challenge being in a small country of, I think, six million people in Singapore is there's only so many people you can can meet. Yeah. Right? You spend spend three months and you meet everyone worth meeting (laughs) and you get into a habit of 60-day visa runs to Vietnam, spending a weekend there, coming back, working with your team, then doing a visa run again, and it becomes too habitual. Um, coming to China earlier this year, early 2017, um, was great for a combination of reasons. Firstly, it's a much bigger market, so the type of people that you meet and the type of partnerships that you open up are um, you know, 10x, 100x. Yeah, scale's uh, just a different, big, right? small country. Yeah. Um, and then secondly, you want to be in an environment where you're just constantly learning either as an entrepreneur or as an individual. And, um, you know, being here, it's hard. You know, if yeah. you're a foreigner, you need VPN, you need to know the local language, you need to be able to navigate a very large sea, whether it's Beijing, Shanghai, Hanzhou. And that just keeps you on your toes. Um, being, you know, Singapore was way too complacent. And it's just a matter of crossing off the country that you can understand very well and moving on to the
0: next. Yeah, so you make a really interesting point which I hadn't heard actually until today, which is also interesting for me. The, like I told you, so I went to a demo day for um, somebody that runs a, an accelerator in Singapore. They also run it in you know, a few other cities in, in the region. But one of the things that they said to me was they love dealing with the Thai entrepreneurs because they feel like they push harder. Do you know what I mean? Like, they're not in a rush, but they're more um, urgent. There's a more of a sense of urgency where they said in Singapore, even if they're good cohorts and they're great companies, there's less of a sense of we've got to keep moving forward. We've got to keep going. We've got to keep pushing. And I wonder what that comes from, actually, because up till now, you know, Singapore has been kind of the startup city in Southeast Asia. All the money's there, it seems like, at some level. So all the startups kind of gravitate there. But you're right. It's small geographically. It's small population-wise. Like you said, only 6 million people. And it's interesting as well that you feel like it just was too repetitive. I hadn't thought about that, actually. I didn't understand that you had to go for visa runs. I know, like, I've got a one-year visa in Thailand, so I don't have to leave the country. But people here do do that. Like, they're not on a standard visa, so they just have to leave to come back on a tourist visa. Interesting. And have you found, so being in... China you also mentioned fundraising which is interesting can you want to talk a little bit about how that works and how being in China is different or raises your profile from a fundraising perspective as well because it seems to me there's so much money sloshing around in Singapore that if you're there and if you're building a business like yours which is you know relevant growing and actually fills a real market need it would be easier in relative terms to raise money in Singapore as well no?
1: Yeah, I mean that was the that was the dreams and hopes that we <laughs> went to Singapore for. Fair enough. Um, Singapore and Hong Kong are very good landing pads for first time being in Asia. Um, a because it's majority of English speaking country. All secondly, right. um, the communities are quite small and tight knit. Um, but one of the challenges we went we realize is uh, Singapore is essentially the gateway to Southeast Asia, and so a lot of the companies you see raising a lot of capital. Would be focusing on helping, um, you know, you know, helping build healthcare in Indonesia or helping build uh, telco infrastructure in Myanmar, and so even though we were a profitable, growing, cash flow business, um, our at the end of the day, our you know, our, our fit wasn't right, and the type of people that we would have, um, the type of investors that we we would meet, we would have to explain to them, you know, the backstory the fundamentals, the psychology behind what we do. So you just don't get people that click with the QLC. Um, the, the interesting part about China is, we even though we don't serve the Chinese market, you do see this new trend of um, you know, what we call returnees or sea turtles, people right. who have studied abroad and come home. And so if our market is really serving students that are traveling or professionals that are you know, living in multiple countries, you want to be in an environment where A, you find successful people with that same lingo and uh, and then secondly, how, how you can help open doors to punchers that can do the same. I think for us, it was just meeting more people that get what we do, um, but also understanding that if you're not building a business for the Southeast Asian market, you need to find a market um, that is uh, interested in what you're trying to solve.
0: Yeah, fair enough. I mean, you mentioned sort of at the beginning of our conversation when I asked you where you were from, you said your family is Chinese by, you know, I guess by their birth, right? But you were born and raised in Australia. Does it help you being in Are you are you a native language speaker as well? No, no. Okay. So that's uh, How that's does that present keys. challenges, yeah?
1: Well, like I said, I I do think that there's this new macro trend of, you know, Australian-born Chinese, Mm. British-born Koreans, you know, people who are born in multicultural backgrounds. And so we're getting to the stage of this generation where you have, um, you know, people living and moving to different parts of the world, and you almost become, it's okay to be a foreigner. It's okay because there's this whole community backing you with that same story. Right. And so for us, it's, it's a very similar approach, because if you look at our investors like William Balbean or Jeffrey Hanley, they share very common traits. They might have been born in New Zealand or in Scotland and raised in different parts of the world, but they're here now. And so as an early stage company, you need to find these champions, um, whether it's from a mentor perspective or fundraising perspective. Um, being in China has just helped us accelerate meeting these people. Um, and I think Shanghai is a very good hotspot because it's all about globalization and cross-border and just meeting people from different parts of the world but with the same backstory.
0: Yeah, so I think this is actually really important, and I, I was talking to somebody today, again, earlier, whose father, I want to get this right, whose father's German, whose mother's Indonesian, lives in Indonesia, and more identifies, you know, with the Indonesian side, but that's probably just because they live there, but I think there's an entire generation of kids You know, my daughter's the same way. Her mother's Japanese, her father's American, born in Japan, but now living in Thailand. And I think that that is actually more typical than most people understand, and you're right. What it means is that in the old days, right, if you were, you know, born and raised in Seoul, and so your mom and dad were there, but you were born, you left at two, and then you moved to, like, California, people still thought about you, and particularly your parents, they're just foreigners, right? Mm. But now people just think of you as kind of (laughs) cool. Like, oh my God, you're like... You're a returning Chinese, but you're from Australia, you have a different perspective, you know, or my daughter, like you're half Japanese. All these things make you kind of cooler, like a bigger person or a fuller person. I think there's a bigger acceptance for that. But it also fits into this macro trend you're talking about about people being able to work from anywhere and provide their work to anywhere and still be in touch with like these cultural differences, which are kind of blurring at some level. I think, right? Because a returning Chinese who studied in California or studied in Kansas and goes back to China is a very different person than somebody who was born and raised in China their whole life, even if they're both Mandarin speakers, even if both of their parents are Chinese. And that I, those differences, I think, end up being really powerful, particularly from a learning ed tech and a working perspective as well. What do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's really touching on two things, um, the whole we're getting
1: to this point of you know, call it Gen Y or Gen Z or whatever generation you want to call it. But it's at this point where um, a lot of these uh, individuals that are born from different multicultures they're getting to a point of A, they're a bit older. So they're starting to work. They're starting to travel. They're starting to go back to their home. They have family spread across the world. But then the second part is you also have foreigners um, like yourself, Moving from America to Thailand, and likewise in Shanghai now, you have a lot of Europeans moving to China um, to learn the local language. Either um, you know having um, uh, you know build, having a family here, or you know having their own unique spin on how you can bring you know the European touch into China. Yeah. So it actually goes both ways, and I guess that's where we try to understand and arbitrage a market because even though you have. Silicon Valley or localized players, building it for the local market, um, I do see this whole cross-border trend being a thing. And that's why our Accelerator, China Accelerator, has that focus. It's really either helping cross-border companies come into
0: China or Chinese companies go abroad. Yeah. And like you said, I think that that's a massive secular trend. And and I can name... Like off the top of my head, like three or four people, you know, Sean Ryan I've interviewed, right? William Bao Bean, Benjamin Joff, Jeffrey Hanley, you. I mean, I could go down this list. Those are people that are just, and you know, you know, Bay McLaughlin, right? All these people that are building businesses in China that aren't really even Chinese and have no relationship there except that they just think it's a massive market and they're participating in the same sort of secular change that you've just discussed. I think it's actually really interesting. And I think a generation ago that would have been really hard to do. And today it's just normal, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's uh, it, it's definitely growing the infrastructure. Um, but like for, for us, we're here because we see opportunity. Um, and I don't know where we're going to be in the next six to twelve months, but um, <laughs> it, it's just the nature of building this kind of business. You want to move to different parts of the world. You want to meet more people because after six months, you'll be able to sort of meet all the contacts and move on. And as the world gets smaller, as flights get cheaper, um, it's a lot easier for you to do so as well.
0: Right, so I wanna loop back and talk to you now about the status of your company, the structure of it, where it's incorporated, what the funding status is like. You you talked a little bit about 10 people in the team, like what everybody does. And where you see it going from here on in, like if 2017 was a year of getting acclimated to moving out of Singapore, living in China, connecting to sort of the ecosystem there, whether that's William or Jeffrey or Benjamin or, or you know Brink and Pei and those guys, what is 2018 about, and how does the funding landscape look for you, team growth, business growth, and stuff like that? If we can talk specifically about QLC as a business now, if you don't mind.
1: Sure. So we are a B2B to C business. Um, and what that means is you would have universities pay us on a recurring basis to send students uh, to the QRC platform. Wow. Um, so last year was actually learning how to sell our product. So we got our first 13 customers um, from Australia, UK, and Singapore paying us on a recurring basis. Wow. This year, 13 universities? 13 universities. Um, we have about we're working with about 55 now, um, but it's actually a process of activating them over the course of the next six to 12 months. Um, in terms of fundraising, it's really to accelerate this process. So um, you'll see an announcement soon, but uh, we're about to close our C round. Um, and that's for the purpose of doubling down on the education space. We want to own the Australian and Singapore education market. And we're also looking at secondary and third markets to explore this year. So the plan for QLC is to really dominate the ed tech landscape. And then we can start focusing on scale, which might be helping individuals or looking at European or American markets. But for now, it's really Doubling down on what we do well, and making sure that we refine our
0: product, the team, and the curriculum behind it. So when you go to when you go to pitch, right? So your team right now, you said there's ten people. They're distributed all over the world, so everybody's not in a central location. What a, what is the breakdown of the team? In other words, what's the tech breakdown? If you don't mind me asking, right? What's the sales breakdown? Obviously, there's you and your co-founder. Um, do you split yeah. duties as well? So you focus mostly on tech, and it's a she, right? So she focuses on something else. like how does how does it work?
1: Yeah, so there's three co-founders, okay. uh, Luke, Faye, and myself. I look after the sales, um, Faye looks after the operations, and Luke looks after the technology. Um, so we actually lived and worked together for two years uh, in Singapore. And, you know, personal decisions or personal preferences, we actually travel and move together quite a bit. Wow. So even though we're fully distributed, we actually do um, bi-yearly uh, team trips um, our last team trip was actually in Thailand, and our next trip next month is going to be in Korea. And this is actually part of having an officeless uh, team. You can live in your home country, but also get to meet and travel around together, um, depending on you know whether or not you're free. And so the way that we've broken down the team, it's one third sales, one third product, and one third uh, operations. And when you think of the product, it's a combination of designers and tech. Um, the operations is curriculum and user happiness, and then you have the sales, which is either selling to the universities or acquiring businesses.
0: Okay. And can we talk a little bit about fundraising as well? So you said you're about to make an announcement, but I think the more important story is like how long, if you can tell me, right, I don't want to know who the, who the investors are because I, most people won't tell you anyway, and I'm not going to ask you size, but I can probably guess. Like, what's that process like for you? What did you learn along the way? And again, what was different from being, what was different within the story that you were telling to people from when you were in Singapore? I presume you were trying to raise money when you came out of the accelerator, but all that kind of stuff between then and now. Can you just run me through that a little bit? Um,
1: I'll I'll be honest. uh, It it was hard uh, early days.
0: (laughs) Um, That's a little bit of an inside joke, isn't it? Yeah.
1: (laughs) If they tell you you can raise money coming out of the accelerator, that's, that doesn't happen. No, it doesn't. Um, and I'm not saying that the Accelerator didn't groom us to know that. It was just naivety as a first-time entrepreneur.
0: Yeah.
1: No, you don't have the best idea. No, you don't have the best team. No, you don't have a strong track record. So you don't deserve the money. You have to earn it. Right. Um, and so we actually had to bootstrap for almost 12 months building out the business because no one was going to give us money, especially for a concept that, A, hadn't been proven, and, B, there weren't comparables in you know the U.S., for what we're doing right and so we had to build this cash flow business and earn the trust and respect and ultimately the guys who ended up investing in us um jeffrey and and william is actually one of those investors are the people who understand our space and understand our own personal stories so we're closing our seed round and i guess my feedback and advice for people raising at this stage is find people who understand you your business is always going to change. The problem that you try to solve is always going to evolve. But what you want to learn and what you want to build are people who can champion you, be lifetime investors, and ultimately you know, share a beer if you wanted
0: to. Yeah, but you make a really good point, right? So the, the story that you hear is almost always in reverse, right? You talk to a, an investor, and whether it's an angel investor, a high net worth individual, a venture capitalist, right, or anybody along sort of the investment chain, and they always sort of preach this concept of, you know, I'm investing in a team and the business model might be unproven, but it's more important to me that the team is good and strong and all this other stuff. And yet you, you hear after the investment is made that like the business model isn't working and they're pivoting too many times and all this other noise. And the reality is that I don't think that most investors actually believe what they say when they say that the team is the most important thing. But it's really interesting to hear it from the other side and have you say, I really want my investors to understand me. And it's a cautionary tale, I think, for people at the same stage of business development and business building as you are to understand that, and again, I ran into a, a VC yesterday, I keep telling this story. And you know, he told me he was being really successful because he had, you know, a couple of his companies were Series A funded. And I said, dude, that's that's not a measure of success at any level. Okay. And he said, he said to me, and I quote, money's money. I'm happy to take it from anywhere. Yeah. Well, I completely disagree with that. I do believe in some sense that money's a commodity, which means that you can get it from multiple sources, but I deeply believe that it really matters who's giving you that money. Yeah, I, I think
1: that different the land the, fund, the the funding landscape has obviously evolved over hmm. the past, you know, 5 years, right? Sure. Um, but I think well, for me, the type of people backing KLC is are those who actually do see the, the – truly have some sort of uh, insight into the problem that we're solving because I'm, there's two type of businesses. One is a copycat business where you need the money to scale because you already have that playbook. Yeah, it's already been proven, right? Right. Um, so it's actually a, a race to who can raise the most money. And then you have – the slow burners who are actually trying to solve something that hasn't been solved yet. Right. So I wouldn't discount taking dumb money over smart money, um, but at times, you know, if you're two months in debt or if you're you know, running on four weeks run rate, like at times you have to give in. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that there's a there's a right way or long way, um, but you will see um, over time the better companies are will stay alive because they did the right thing the right
0: way. Yeah, so you, you're, you may note, and if you go back over and listen to the previous section, I never use the term smart money and dumb money. And I do that for a reason, because I think that's a lazy way, and I'm not saying you said that, but I think it's a very lazy way for people to sort of differentiate. But what I did say was that it really matters who's giving it to you. And sure, if you're desperate, you'll eat pizza, even if you hate pizza, just to survive. Fair enough. But if you're telling me you raise your Series A and I'll take that money from anybody I can get it from, the reality is if you take money from a corporate who's in your sector for your Series A, which you should do in Series C, then well, basically what you're telling me is you're married to that corporate because they're never going to let another customer or another sort of competitor in that space use your product, invest in you, or even acquire you. It's just a really different metric. And that was kind of the conversation we had yesterday or the day before with this guy. And you know what you're saying is very, is very different, I think. right That in a, in a desperate time, sure, you'll take the money if you can get it. But you know, it took you 12 months in bootstrapping. And I think that's normal. I mean, I've worked with companies as well and helped them get funded. It takes time. You know, everyone, and, and everyone starts too late as well. Like, that's what I found. Like, we need to raise money over the next three months. Sure. Good luck, because that's never going to happen. Even your fastest growing companies today, it takes time to do it. But I'm always curious about your experience in what that's like. Yeah, I think for us, um, we're in the education space, and
1: statistically, education companies are the ones that take the longest to build. Yeah, um, and the longest to fundraise because you know, a the sales cycles Longer. are very long. And B, um, you know, the relationships that you build are long term. And so uh, I guess from our end, we wanted to focus on building it right and acquiring the right teammates and finding good advisors that could help us open doors. Um, And it's not to say that we've, you know, we haven't made mistakes along the way. We're always
0: screwing up. Um, But, yeah, we're here now. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. We're always screwing up. Yeah, I mean, look, one of the great things for me over the past year or so is I'm trying to build a business as well and it's hard <laughs> like it's just really hard and every time you think you like you've done something really well something else comes around and bites you and like you said you screw up a bunch of times but that's part of the success process i think i know that sounds a little bit trite right but like anybody who says they've never they've never failed is either too stupid to realize it or is just lying to you and lying to themselves and i do think i want to make a i want to put a finer point on what you said about the investors too like i don't think it's a mistake or a coincidence that people like William and people like Jeffrey, who fit into the same kind of business model as you, right? They're multicultural. They understand the changes in the macro environment. They understand the secular changes. And they're just investing in that writ large. I don't think it's a big surprise that people like they are have invested in your company. They can also be super helpful because they're experiencing the same sort of secular trends as you are as they're happening. And I think that's great, actually yeah we're very excited to have them on board um
1: and uh, if there's more people like that feel free to reach out
0: (laughs) yeah exactly if you're listening to this and you have those same ideas please do feel free to reach out um look just before i let you go so what's your view on what um on what 2018 is going to end up looking like for qlc like how many more people do you hire what do you think your next market entry point is going to be and you said like you're in china now but Maybe you're not in China forever. Do you see, foresee yourselves, the three of you in particular, just like moving to another place, even if it's just to experience what it's like there and understand how to build relationships with, I don't know, Indonesian universities as an example?
1: Yeah. Um, to answer that question first, I think um, we're all, in quotation marks, Asia'd out. Um, but I guess one market that we'd be interested in checking out is either the UK or certain parts of Europe.
0: Wow. Wow. That's shocking to me. Really?
1: Yeah. Uh, only because uh, we do see that as phase two, phase three of where the universities are going to be. Um, and also, you know, we've done Asia um, over the past four years now. So we want to be constantly stimulated. And again, you know, the people here aren't really gonna, Like, we're always going to be home when we come here, but we're always looking for other ways to push ourselves and just meet people outside of our network. Um, As for the business, I do see ourselves uh, expanding, A, the education products that we're offering, so not just remote internships, um, and secondly, understanding different archetypes who would like to use us. So apart from universities and higher education, we're actually working with some big uh, accounting companies around the world that want to help transform the way that their employees think and work. And so we can go upstream to more professionals, or we can go downstream to different universities in different parts of the world. Interesting. And that's actually something that we're, I guess, like trying to figure out this year: do we scale horizontally, or do we go vertical into market?
0: Right. It's an interesting question. I'm really interested in this concept of being Asian out, or just, you know, maybe slightly overwhelmed by just all the differences that occur here. I hear it a lot, actually, and I don't think it's just Asia. In other words, I think if you are you know, Chinese born and raised in China and you live in Paris for four years. I don't think you can get paris out, right? I don't think it's anything particular to Asia. But like, how does that manifest itself? Do you know what I mean? I think um, the more you travel as a quotation mark
1: digital nomad, yeah. the the, easy, like, the easier it becomes for you to settle in a place. And the easier it becomes for you to settle in a place, the faster you get complacent. Yeah, fair enough. And it's, it's actually less on... Um, like not liking the culture, not liking the people. But I do feel, even though we've been in Shanghai for eight months, we were in Singapore for three years. I, w- I was in Australia for, you know, 25, 26 years. This, the time for it takes for you to, A, understand the country, and B, fall into this routine gets shorter, shorter, shorter. Way shorter, yeah. And so I, I don't know if it's the, like a traveling thing or, um, you know, just having a third or fourth home thing, but I want to constantly you know, move around myself individually, um, but also meet more people and just learn new things. Because if we're not doing that in the business, then why should we be solving this problem? If we're not constantly... Um, you know, developing and evolving its people, why are we the right people to be teaching others the same?
0: Yeah, no, I, think it's a real, I think it's a really fair question. Um, you know, you're basically living your own marketing tools, right? I mean, you're basically just saying, look, people are going to do what we're going to do. They go to Shanghai, they love it, they stay there for a year, they learn a bunch, and then they want to live in Berlin for a year or two, depending. They can still do the same job or they can still provide the same service to a different company or they can start their own company, but this is the way we think people are going to live. And we're just going to live the same way. We tell people that we think they should be living. And we're going to build the proper tools to make that possible. That's what it seems like to me. Like, and so being Asian out just means you know you're just living the life you think everyone's going to live, regardless, right? And you'll get Berlin out if you go to Berlin, or London out if you go to London. Like I said, I don't think it's particular to Asia, and I don't think you've said that either.
1: Yeah, exactly. You actually, um, I'm
0: just dialing back to that exact phrase that you just said.
1: Um, which was we want people to live the way we think that they should be living because yeah. that's how we're living. Um, and that actually gives a lot of um, – it's, it's interesting you say that because the point that comes to my head is from Australia, for example, uh, one of the typical moves, um, the physical relocations would be either to Singapore, Hong Kong, London, New York, yep. right? It's because yep. those are the countries that you're brought up watching you know, TV shows, yep. and that's where you have most Very of the network. Um, and so we actually did that second transition and now we're in our third transition. So it's almost interesting to see if we could start plotting new narratives of where we live. So you might've moved from, you know, you know, America to Thailand, from Thailand to China, from China to Berlin, whatever that story is. Um, I do see this as part of this whole macro trend and if we are the ones setting this trend or, at the very least at the forefront, then I think
0: we should continue doing what we do without rules or barriers. Yeah, I agree. In other words, you're, you're not doing anything you wouldn't suggest anybody else would do. And frankly, you're actually on plan to move somewhere else the same way you would have expected to live, right? It's no different than what you've been talking about all along. If you didn't do it, it would actually be stranger, I think
1: exactly if we didn't do it then we shouldn't be doing this company yeah
0: it was like who are you to tell me so people say this to me all the time you don't know what you're talking about because you've never done this well actually i have done that i'm in the middle of doing it and that's how i know all of this and it's the same thing for you guys yeah
1: exactly so i mean i mean the the analogy would be
0: if you haven't
1: you know built a business why should you be teaching others how to be an
0: entrepreneur yeah exactly Um, like the nerve of you to tell me right yes exactly (laughs) okay well look well i think that's a great way to end um and i look forward to catching up with you again in a few months to find out how everything's going see if you're still in shanghai and just find out if all the things you thought were going to happen in the first and second quarter of 2018 actually do and just want to thank you so much for taking the time i mean an hour out of a day like yours is you know like five hours out of a regular person's day so i really appreciate it no, thanks so much.
1: Like like I said, I'm a very big fan of what you're doing. Thank you. You're on this macro trend of people just moving around and learning about different parts of the world. Um, again, thanks so much for having me on this. Uh, let me know if uh, anyone has any questions. You could hit me up on WillFanQLC. That's my Twitter. Um, and if there's anything else, you can reach out to Michael uh, to pass him any questions. So thanks so much for having me here.
0: It's my pleasure. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast, Find out more
1: at ATP.show.